0: Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer in episode 52 of the Speaking Club podcast. They say that nothing pulls people together better than having a common enemy. But if you can't find one of those for similar results, why not try a common enema?
1: Welcome to the Speaking Club podcast because making them laugh is the secret sauce to your speaking, pitching, and business success. And now, your host, Sarah Archer.
0: Welcome to the show. So Simon Fanshawe was recommended to me as someone I should definitely get on the podcast. And that person wasn't wrong. He's not had a dull life. With a Perrier Award for comedy and an OBE, he's left a trail of achievement behind him. But one of the biggest challenges he faced for many years was finding himself. And I talked to him about the impact of not having that clarity over his own persona what drives him to continue to shake things up, and his approach to and thoughts about public speaking and lots more it's a fascinating insight into some of the big things that have happened in the last forty years, and I'm certain you're going to take away value from this show. Enjoy as a champion of diversity. It is no surprise that my guest career also embraces this theme. he's been a perrier award-winning stand-up comedian, a journalist, a broadcaster, one of the founders of Stonewall, a speaker non-exec director and he also works with Roy Hutchins with a company called Diversity by Design so welcome to the show Simon Fanshawe.
1: Thank you very much lovely to be here.
0: Good now so no one could call you an underachiever.
1: My therapist.
0: (laughs) Excellent and until I did my research I didn't know you'd won the Perry Award at Edinburgh Fringe back in 1989 and I'd love to start there and I think you started doing stand-up in 1982, can you tell me how you got into doing it and what was it like being a comic during what a lot of people considered to be the golden era?
1: Well, it wasn't so much a golden era, but it was, the, it was the beginning. That was what was different about the industry now. Um, it's unrecognizable now. I did it because the place that I worked in burnt down. <laughs> I was a community worker at that point and um, somebody burnt it down or it got burnt down no one actually ever quite got to the bottom of it um there were many theories anyway so we did a benefit and i had for a long time thought oh you know i'm quite a funny chap and you know maybe we ought to do this so i thought well i'll do a you know that's what i'll do i am organizing the benefits so i'll book myself so i booked myself and uh and there i was and i went and did um, and in fact i have got a picture of it somewhere there's me sitting on a stool and i've got the most Oh my God, the clothes. I mean, we are talking here now, 1981, I suppose, <laughs> and I'm wearing a sort of, there's a kind of, a pair of beige, I'm not going to go into it, and hair and all sorts of things that I don't have now. And um, and I did it, you see, and the thing about doing it the first time is when you absolutely don't know what you're doing, it's sort of fine and it was a benefit and everybody was sort of, you know, pulling together. And um and it was sort of fine. And then somebody booked me, which was a frightful mistake because actually I didn't know what I was doing. So the next time I did a gig, I was completely freaked out. And I remember I had a music stand with all these jokes sort of sellotaped to it so that I could sort of see them. And I, I think I got maybe two laughs. So that was good.
0: That's not bad. Feel okay. first proper go, no. But
1: the thing is, it's, it's a bug. I'm, and, and, and actually, I just, I sort of, and then, and the, your question was, why did I do it? Well, the, the answer actually is quite simple. It's because I could. I mean, it simply was possible. I mean, if you look at the big reasons, you can see that there were lots of structural things that happened. I mean, one was that somebody, a guy called Peter Rosengard bought the comedy uh, a store idea from America. He brought it to the UK and started the thought. Actually, you could run a, a comedy club, and there were quite a lot of this in the states at that point. So he sort of bought one bit of the structure, and then the second thing that happened was that all those groups that sort of had funding and stuff in the sort of seventies and things, arts council, local authority, all those kind of things. All that starts to fall away, of course, with the Thatcher government in 79. So there wasn't any money. So actually art centres and all that lot were kind of looking for something, you know, and comedy's cheap and people like it, so they show up. So that became a sort of circuit, you know, and so you could feel the kind of infrastructure was sort of emerging. And then Alexei Sale just did this thing, you know, and, and he did this joke. I remember when I, I wrote for Jasper Carrot sometimes later, and Jasper said he was at some benefit for a charity called Save a London Child and Alexi went out and did this joke which was Save a London Child, Kill a Social Worker. (laughs) You know and Jasper just said I can't, I have to change what I'm doing, I'm doing stupid songs about mopeds you know so there was this kind of extraordinary sort of explosion and it was kind of possible is the simple answer and there was this little infrastructure that people started and you did Rooms Above Pubs and I did my first ever gig, I think, in a place called the Crown and Castle. Well,
0: I was going to say I I, I started comedy about ten years after you gave up, and they was st- <laughs> we were still doing gigs above pubs so <laughs> none of that shit. The
1: thing is that it's grown and grown and grown, and now there are these sort of massive sort of um, you know stadium shows and, mm. and, and huge theatres and people doing long runs to the West End and massive tours and Michael McIntyre and Peter Kay and things. I mean, earning you know millions of pounds out of these huge gigs, but it it. it And some of them are great and some of them are not. I mean, I think that's always been the case. You know, what there was, was a lot of very different voices when we started. And I think it's changed a bit. I think there's some degree to which, you know, a comic is a comic is a comic on one level now. And yet the really interesting voices are the ones that emerge. Mm. I mean, the thing that for me that was odd in retrospect was that I was doing comedy as a gay man. And, you know, this is a television era in which on television, the gay comics were not out. I mean, they were the Larry Graysons and the, um, and, and and you know, those sorts of people. And looking back on them, they were hilarious, but they weren't out, you know, yeah. so it turned out we were all doing something a bit different.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And why why did you give up in 1992? Was it, Did you feel that you'd achieved everything you could or you were just bored of it? What made you stop?
1: Well, I think there are a number of things. I think I felt I hadn't achieved what I could achieve and that I wasn't going to, probably. I'd got as far as I had. I remember sitting on a train in an October afternoon, going to somewhere like Stoke and it was raining and there was condensation on the window and I was on my own and I was going to talk to people who by that stage were at least 10 years younger than me who had very little interest in anything that I had to say and I had sort of very little interest in that. I kind of just lost I just thought, what am I doing? You know, and by then I'd started to do radio and I started to write a bit and I started to do other things, and I, I kind of just got more interested, I suppose, in that. I wasn't making the progress. I never really understood, in the way that I now understand, what my relationship as Simon Fanshawe, gay man, middle class man, etc., etc., etc. I understood bits of that relationship with the audience, but in truth. I didn't understand it. The other person, who the sort of two of us, you know, that were there was of course myself and Julian Clary.
0: Yes. Julian
1: absolutely instinctively understood his relationship with his audience. He just knew how to use who he was. And I never quite did. And I, I think there was a bit of me that always thought, phew, I got away with it. And I think inside there was a bit of me that was always a bit defensive. Uh, and I think I never quite let myself go. And because I never quite let myself go and understood that relationship in the way that I do now, I mean, now I do and say things on stage with, you know, complete kind of inner confidence in a way that I just never did then. So I think I just ran aground, really.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because they say in comedy that until you find your persona, you, you won't make it or, you know, you won't get the success that you potentially could have. It sounds like that that sort of, you didn't quite nail that yourself. That's kind of what you're saying, is it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you are the joke, really. I mean, it, you know, if one wants to get to kind of virtual you know, academic, you're the text, you know, what you say and what comes out of you, but that's it. There's a very famous instance at the Oscars when Jack Benny, the famous American comic, who had built an act around being legendarily mean, that was his shtick. Yeah. And he And he was on the stage at the Oscars, and a man dressed as a stereotypical robber came on with a swag bag and held up Benny and said, your money or your life. And Jack Benny put his hand on his chin and went, hmm. Now, now that joke, your money or your life, you know, and him thinking about it, that had taken 50 years to build that joke. And that's the point about comedy is that, that, that actually when it's brilliant and Stuart Lee does a wonderful thing about, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the comic, but one of those sort of TV sort of middle of the roadie type, you know, sort of fourth on the bill at the Royal Karate performance. It's, J-
0: it's Joe, oh, Joe, Joe.
1: Uh, it is Joe something or other. Yes, with the high
0: squeaky that, voice. Yeah.
1: Feeling a joke. And what's brilliant about it is, it's stealing a joke from a comedian, and what Stuart does so beautifully, the joke is of an an Irish comic who comes on the stage, he was called Michael Redmond, and he had long-ish hair, and a droopy kind of sabato moustache, you know, like a Mexican moustache, and a very droopy bloodhound face, and he used to wear a long black mac, and he used to stand on the stage for like a minute and a half, an age. And he would say, people say to me, get out of my garden. <laughs> and the thing about that joke is it's only funny because there's this weird whatever standing on the stage and Capaldi nicked it. Of course, or well, not Capaldi. That's uh, Pasquale, Joe
0: Pasquale. Pasquale yeah. nicked
1: it. And Stuart does this brilliant taking a part of the joke to show how he couldn't do the joke. The joke was meaningless if Pasquale did it. And that's the point. And so in the end, but I think there was a sort of, I think there's a political thing, and I don't know how interesting this is for people listening, but I think there's a political thing in there about the relationship between gay men. I was a gay man in ordinary clothes.
0: Yes. that
1: Julian was, that Julian rather brilliantly, part of how he understood the audience was he, he understood how they... Um, would understand gayness, and he understood how to use that and turn it in a sense into a powerful tool which you know he he's very powerful on stage julian he's in, he's got extraordinary control and um he I played up talk- to
0: the stereotype effectively didn't he played it?
1: up the stereotype but he did more than that in the sense that he also used the stereotype you know, he, he, he turned it to his advantage in a way that makes it powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think... That, so I think there's a political thing there about what... This was the 80s. You have to remember, this is way pre-Stonewall. This is, this is 13 years after the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality. Mm. You know, 1967, is that 13 years? It is, 13 years. Yeah, 1980 yeah. is 13 years. So this is very early, you know, early doors. And I think for me, there was also something psychological that actually... I still lived with a lot of internalized guilt about being gay. And I think that, you know, so that means you come out fighting a bit. And I mm. think that there was a sense of defiance with me, which didn't actually embrace the audience. It's all pushed them away. God, you know, that, you that's 50 quid to you. for. The- <laughs>
0: so, but the, the interesting thing as well is, is that whole persona thing also switches over into speakers as well. I want to leave that there because I want to talk about what happened next. So, so there you were on the train, you made that decision. And then what happened next with, with your career?
1: The fun, just, just, just the coda to that was the last gig I ever did at that point, uh, proper stand up, was with Jack D and Joe Brand and we were at Blackpool. They were so lovely. Uh, they made me go on top of the bill. It oh, nice! It, it way you know, way further up the bill than I was. They said, "No, no, you go on top of the bill," and then they took the piss out of me. <laughs> and um, uh, so, what happened? Yes, was there was things that had started to overlap because you know the comedy thing was sort of growing a bit, and and therefore one could get a sort of you know one was a sort of biggish fish in a very very small pool. I was a sort of middle sized fish. Um, you know, I started so I did a column in Time Out. I started to broadcast on radio for, you know, there were things that emerged, um, you know, so I kind of got a voice really at different places. And I found radio, I really enjoyed radio. Radio is a very beautiful medium because it's so simple. And then I started to write and then I did stuff for Sunday Times and I did I wrote for Sometimes Culture Section for, for a long, long time, sort of previewing and you know, interviewing performers and actors who I love and and directors and writers. So that was that was enormously good fun and doing lots of theatre and you know, review, not reviewing, but previewing stuff and things. And all that was great, actually, and it really suited me. And but then in a parallel bit of my life, um, I was also became chairman of War on Want. Oh. Um, which is the third world development charity and unfortunately at that time the general secretary was somebody called George Galloway with whom you will be um familiar. familiar um so I had to make a decision about whether I defended the charity or not because he did some amazing things at the beginning but my goodness me it became about him yeah. and um and then you know I had to try to defend the charity really when it was a very difficult position and uh he, he's he's a person with whom I, I would... There are very few people in the world with whom I would not want to have any more contact, but he is one of them. So that was a difficult time, and it's part of the reason why I'm bald. Um, <laughs> but it was a fascinating time because... Because in terms of the sort of the things that I wanted to do in life, it was a it was an amazing advocate for the self-determination of people overseas. And consequently, you met extraordinary people. And I would have, I remember one night sitting in a hotel on the Euston Road with a bunch of South Africans, one of whom was a man called Ismail Corvadia.
0: What a cool and name.
1: Amazing then. He was in South African parlance. He would be, you know, mixed race or coloured or whatever. He was, he was a sort of Arab extraction um, heritage. And I remember saying to him, it was an extraordinary moment in my life. I remember saying to him, what is it? What is it that keeps you lot going? what is it? You know, you're brutalised every day of the week. This was, I mean, this was the beginning of the end of apartheid. but it was only the beginning of the end and they'd had years of this, you know, and he was a man of sort of 60 and he looked at me and said, he had a beautiful voice and he said, very quietly, he said, patience and faith. Wow. And it just was a moment, you know, and I just thought, gosh, you know, so I was always meeting people like that, so it was an absolutely fascinating thing to do, you know.
0: And I mean, I might be wrong, but, but looking from the outside in terms of, what you've done and everything that you've achieved there is this I feel golden thread linking everything and that's around affecting change you know different things and it feels like you've always been on a mission has it felt like that to you or you know have you always been driven or or at some point you thought yes this is what I must do or is that not true at all
1: well it it's interesting, isn't it? Because in retrospect, it's easy to see it that way. And I think you're right. I think that, you know, if, one, if people often say, what do you do? And I say, <laughs> well, look, I argue for things is actually what I do. It's what I've always done. I've always argued for something. The interesting question, I suppose, is why? And I used to think because it was to do with a sort of insecurity and I kind of wanted to be useful. I think there might be a bit of that. I think it's also that there's something about growing up and different classes have different versions of this. Um, There's a kind of working class version, which is very much about trade unions and mutuals and, you know, community and all that sort of stuff. The middle class version is is my parents, you know, and they were just people who always dobbed in. I mean, they were on the parish council or, you know, wherever it was. And uh, my mother used to say this thing. My oft-quoted mother, my comedic mother, and a real mother as well. She would say, "Darling, the least you can do is make marmalade for the fate." <laughs> so I guess what I've been doing all my life is making marmalade for the fate, really, um, and it's a compulsion that, that drives me. And you know, and look, it, 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 they're accidental when you achieve things. So things like War on Want, i mean, that was about trying to really fashion a small, effective charity—and—and. And, and, in one sense defended but but you know it, what it was doing and the principles along which it did it were extraordinary so they were about um trying to provide uh, the wherewithal for people themselves to implement their own solutions so there was a real solidarity relationship and and that was a really interesting argument to sort of argue and stonewall was a really interesting thing to argue because when we started stonewall we weren't the sort of you know, kind of ghastly, bright branded, uh, commercialised, um, you know, let's all be an EY and wear drag kind of thing <laughs> that we are now. You know, we weren't trendy. We were essentially um, old men who wanted to get young men into bed. That was the sort of, you know, and I remember having many arguments with Geoffrey Archer. He used to say, you know, is that, I mean, they're too young. They're too young. I mean, you're, you're, this is all about men trying to seduce younger boys.
0: He actually came out and said that.
1: I mean, it was sort of bundled up in this idea that the age of consent's too young at 16 because you don't know that you're gay. And and there was a sort of implication that really all you're trying to do by lowering the age of consent is make legal your rather, you know, untoward attraction to teenage men.
0: Really? God. That
1: was sort of what he was arguing, yeah. But it was very common in those days very common i mean that that was an argument that we had the whole time and my counter to it was look actually i used to say look i really don't care about the age of consent 16 18 21 or 48 i'm really not i think that's a separate debate i just want it to be equal mm. so you want to have a debate about where it should be well let's have that debate fantastic but uh, and that was the point about stonewall i mean what was i think fun and interesting about it was that we started it out of a real sense i think of I think I think real kind of naivety and optimism in a way, you know this thing called Section Twenty Eight. I mean, anybody listening who doesn't know what Section Twenty Eight is, it's worth just recapping. You weren't allowed to to promote homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. That was the phrasing, so you couldn't say it was legitimate. And there's a famous speech by Thatcher in which she says, uh, people, our children are being told, you know, it's acceptable to be gay or some such, or it's their right to be gay or something like that." So, we thought, well, this is not a good thing, because, you know, it'd be difficult for us. But what we did something, or the people who started it did something quite clever. Yes, I wasn't really involved at this point. I got involved in it very early on, but the the tenor was set quite early on, and it was really clever, and it was this. They've made it a freedom of speech campaign, freedom of expression campaign. They said, you know, if you ban homosexuality in schools, no Michelangelo, no Tchaikovsky, no David Hockney. And, you know, in other words, it was about, you know, you don't catch this thing. You know, people, kids don't get gay because they hear about David Hockney. They think, oh, that'd be good. I think, wear, I think I'll wear a big pair of specs and sleep. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's not that easy. It doesn't happen like that, you know. Um, I was with a friend last night and he, I, he was saying, you know, whenever people ask him when he comes out, he always says between the ages of eight and 25. You know what I mean? It's a process. Yeah. So, so we mounted this campaign and, 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 and it became clear that actually there was quite a broad range of support for a notion of fairness, that actually people didn't think that gays should be treated differently. You know, the, and we sort of sensed this, so that was kind of really interesting. And then we realized as we went through Section 28 that we didn't have an organization that could do the boring old lobbying work of MPs to get all these discriminatory bits of legislation changed. So that's what we started, and it was based on the principle of equality. So back to my argument with Geoffrey Archer. You know, I don't care what the age of consent is, I just want it to be equal. Yeah. It was always the argument. So you were asking me, you know, why I do these things. I found that a really compelling notion. The, com- the idea of equal treatment under the law, fair treatment of kids in schools... You know, these are powerful ideas that 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 drive one, and I think you know that I get from my dad you know I mean, absolute sense of the need for fairness
0: and it, you know and it and that it, it comes through in, in sort of you know everything that you say and everything that you do and I'd imagine so today you know you're you're coming to speak at an event that that I'm at later on this year and i would imagine the audience that you're speaking to at that event is is a fairly um receptive and you know friendly audience but i would imagine that's not always the case or maybe it wasn't always the case and how how do you manage that message you know when you're speaking to an audience that you may feel is not you're not as friendly towards, you're not as receptive to what you're saying and you're trying to make that change. Is that something that's happened and how have you managed that in the past?
1: Sometimes people say to me, you know, what's the secret of good public speaking? And I always say, look, it's, it's quite simple, really. You've got to know what you want to say and you've got to want to say it to them. So, you know, you don't just say the same old things and you think about where they are and how you can move them and move them on. So it's always, I mean, advocacy is always about finding the argument you think will get traction. And I do a session quite often, which I've, I've called it after something which which happened, which sort of explains this. And it wasn't my title, but somebody I did a, a session for, uh, for a big insurance company, called the session, Diversity, Why Bloody Bother? Yeah. And the reason she did it was that she knew that the audience was a bit reluctant to talk about diversity. Now, fortunately, uh, there were two reasons that, that this was fortunate. One was that the conference was in Barcelona in an incredibly posh hotel. So I had this extraordinary room on a hill in Barcelona, which overlooked the cities. That was lovely. And a big bath in the middle of the room and all that stuff. <laughs> so that was really nice and sort of you know, hot and cold running champagne or cold running champagne. And... Um, so I arrived there quite late, and they'd all been out to dinner, and they were all a bit pissed. So I went to the bar and talked to the chief exec and this person, this woman, and they gave me the most honest briefing that I've ever had for a speaking event. And basically what they said was, look, this lot will all be incredibly hungover, and they don't want to talk about diversity, and they're all a bit bored by the subject. So I went back to my room and thought, okay, how are we gonna get around that? So what I decided to do was I decided to ask them, this is an insurance company, in me, so it was the UK and Ireland, so it wasn't in me, it was the UK and Ireland senior leadership of an insurance company. So about 30 people. 30 people. So I thought, well, the first thing I'll ask them about is what are the big challenges to insurance at the moment? Because insurance has been like everything has been kind of hugely disruptive. So we spent about 20 minutes thinking about know that. And then that was interesting. And I said, okay, the next thing I want you to think about is who have you got in your team and who do you rely on for what? So they chatted about that for a bit and came up with some answers. I said, all right, thinking about the challenges, now what I want you to do is I think about who you haven't got in your team that you need in order to meet these challenges. Because you're clearly going to have to think much more widely and in different directions. But be specific. I said, I want you to be really specific about this. I want you to pick one challenge and one project. So they did that for a bit. And they started talking about the fact that they were all kind of quite middle-aged and actually they didn't have enough young people in the business. They weren't attracting young people, which meant that actually the products they were producing and the way they were trying to sell them were not hitting the markets they wanted to hit. They started talking about the changing nature of this insurance business itself and the need to relate to customers. So that was all about people who were digitally savvy. Then they started talking about other markets that they couldn't get into, which were really about ethnic markets and so on and so forth. So they started doing all this, (laughs) And after about this is so we're about two hours in now, you see. And I said to them, um, I said, "Go after coffee, and I'll get, get a bit of, note, bit of news for about an hour and a half." And that's a bit of news after the call. We come back from coffee. <laughs> so they came back from coffee, and I said, "Right, here's the, here's what we've talked about so far." And I did a little summation. I said, "Now here's the here's the bit of news." Turns out you're talking about diversity. So I to slip it to you in this kind of <laughs> manipulative way. And they went, "Oh, are we?" And they went, "Yeah, that's all it's about." All it's about is about trying to work out what's the combination of insights and skills and experiences that you need to tackle the things you've got to tackle. That's, that's diversity. That's, that's what we're looking for. Now, there are lots of things about technical things then about why aren't you getting those people and why aren't the people you've got not rising up the business. And there's all sorts of stuff around the diversity deficit. But if you want to talk about the diversity dividend, that's all it is. It's behavior and mind difference in order to produce better results. And they were t- and they was really funny about it, and they went, Oh, this is quite interesting, then. And I went, I know it is. So <laughs> that's went, why I
0: started a business, yeah.
1: That's a- but, but, but that's just a little example of if I had just gone in and talked to them about sort of race and da da da, it would not have worked. They just would have shut down. So, what I had to do was develop a device, a sort of little journey that they could go on. So that they could embrace it. And one of the things I often say about this is that, that, that speaking is that passion is your worst enemy. Because the problem with being passionate about what you believe in is it frequently means you forget to listen.
0: That's brilliant, actually, what you just said there. Yeah, that's because you lose the objectivity which you need in order to build an argument from their perspective.
1: You forget that they're not as passionate about it as you are. Yeah. And just being passionate. I mean, who does that convince? You know, and I can't bear the use of the word passion in business. People are always being asked to be, you know, passionate about pizza or doorknobs or something. You think, oh, stop. You know what <laughs> I mean? Passion, when it's proper, is about orgasms and social change. You know, it's not about, you know, for goodness sake. So, so I think, you know, one has to be really careful as so a speaker. If you want to convince people, it is important that they understand your commitment and authenticity and passion about the subject. But don't let your passion drown out your ability to hear what they think about the subject and try and meet that
0: interesting really interesting cool and so when did so the company you know did all that stuff on the, the media when did you start diversity by design you know and and is it it's something that you do all the time or a lot today
1: yeah well I had a sort of interim period um during which I did quite a lot of stuff in Brighton it's my sort of I, I think it's my civic period you know you know Picasso had his blue period <laughs> and um In other words, I got very involved in the local city and we did a campaign called um, The Place to Be, which was the campaign to win city status um, for Brighton and Hove. And that was successful. But in order to make it a a good campaign, I had to make sure that um, uh, uh, if we weren't successful, there was a kind of legacy. You know, And one of the things I was involved in was setting up the economic partnership, which was a strategy body for the city and we brought together people and we you know, tried to do things that would help people to sort of survive and thrive in the economy. And we set up an arts commission, which was about culture here and things like that. So I was doing some things which were sort of in the public service. And I'd also um, ended up on a board for a friend of mine, very brilliant communications company. Um, Forster, which had a a lot of um, um, business through the government in public health, uh, those kind of things. And when 2010 came, and the election was looming, well, 2009 came, and I knew the election was going to be soon, and actually, I didn't think Labour would win it. I remember thinking, well, that's interesting, I'm about to lose two thirds of my income which is associated with the public sector one way or another, either through the private sector or directly from the public sector. So I, once I'd sort of lied down on the floor and, you know, cried and uh, you know, sort of walked around my my flat in a sort of nostalgic way, thinking this will be for the last time. And sort of chosen my bench on the seafront, etc. cetera. Um, I am... Um, I'd done a piece for the Institute for Public Policy, uh, 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 IPPR, what's it called the Institute for Public Policy and Research or something. Um, lovely organisation. And that was really about trying to expand the idea of diversity at that point because it had got very stuck in a sort of tick boxy sort of, and it was called um, You Can't Put Me in a Box. And it was, people would call it intersectionality nowadays, but I can't. I, don't like all these words I mean I think it's the fact that you know people are lots of different people and they experience life in lots of different ways and so you have to find a way of understanding diversity not in a singular way but in a more complex way for people um, and you have to take account of people's individual ambition and achievement I mean there were gay cabinet ministers there were black people at the head of industries you know so you had to sort of work out actually this is just not about oppression and victimhood solely it's about a bunch of stuff so I'd written that and uh, with a friend of mine <laughs> um who's called Dananjayan and and Sri Skandaraja. And the reason that I say that is he's actually known as Danny. But the reason he said to me, you must learn how to say my name because otherwise it looks like two white blokes writing about diversity. So, So I learned Danny's name. So we did this and people kept on saying, well, if that's the theory, what's the practice? And I always say with Diversity by Design that we we did start, and this is Roy Hutchins and I, who's a great performer as well, and we had known each other since 1979, really, or 1980 when we both started performing. Um, We started this company through a combination of, of, I would say, despondency and optimism. (laughs) And despondency because actually the state of diversity, given the level of investment, You know, the progress is achingly slow and small, really. There are some terrific things that have been done and some fantastic achievements that people have made. I mean, 30% Club is a very good one. You know, there's a whole load of stuff like that. But actually still, the opportunities and the development of the talent of people who come from black and Asian backgrounds, women, a bunch of other people, is woefully small. Uh, in the UK. I mean, even in the NHS, for instance, if you look at something called the Workplace Race Equality Standard, it's a nine point uh, uh, sort of set of targets, which are very extensive data exercise underneath it. It is still the case that you're almost twice as likely to go from a shortlist to a job in the NHS if you're white than if you're black or Asian. You know, and, you know, so there's some serious deficits here. Real lack of progress in, in, in many, many ways, despite billions of dollars and pounds, you know. So the despondency was, we well, clearly not doing the right thing. The optimism was, actually, if we can work out why it's so slow and small, then we can work out what the right thing to do is. So that was the sort of foundation of the company. And what we developed from that, really, was a was a theory about what changes things. And there's a wonderful academic, anybody listening, I mean, I won't go into detail in this stuff, but anybody listening, there's a wonderful book written by a woman called Iris Bonnet, which is spelled B-O-H-N-E-T, and she's a professor at Harvard. And she's a Swiss-American. And if you ask Iris what she thinks about something, you say, Iris, you know, what's your take on blah? She'll say things like, I don't have a take because I don't have the data. (laughs) she's absolutely amazing in that respect and she became our kind of research sort of mother really although she's actually younger than me but she's way cleverer and what we've done really is taken her ideas and just a taste of it I'll tell you it's a good story is in the 70s orchestras were recruiting musicians and they kept on saying we just want to listen to how people play and then we want to recruit the best musicians and they kept on recruiting white men and they couldn't understand what was happening. It just, statistically, that's just unlikely. I mean, why would all the best musicians be white men? It's just like in the FTSE 100 and the top three jobs, and I know this because i counted and got it on the hands of a friend of mine as an MP, there are more men called John, David, and Andrew at the top 300 jobs in the FTSE 100 than there are women and black and Asian
0: people.
1: Wow. I just think that's statistically unlikely. You know, that. All the best people will be called John, David, and Andrew. So, so there's something odd about it. And you think, well, there's, there's something going on here that we don't understand. So some Bright Sparks said, and you, if you watch The Voice on telly, you'll see you know, an equivalent of this. They put a curtain between the people playing and the people listening. And the key thing about that is you can really then actually just listen to how they play. Because what the research told us is two things. And Iris' book is really good. By that way, it's called What Works? Gender Equality by Design. And what Iris's research tells us is this. Number one, you can't educate your way out of these preferences. We're all driven to decisions we don't even necessarily want to make. You've got to design your way out. You have to put the curtain in. And the second thing it tells you is that what's really bizarre is that the, ju- the, 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 the fact that they were white and male, a non-musical attribute, was leading to a musical judgment that they play better. They actually heard white men play better. Wow. And yet when the curtain was in, they, they only heard the really good musicians. So what we've developed and what, what diversity needs, and it's really interesting, this is absolutely in the ether now, is we need a way of really being able to look at the evidence without being drowned out by the noise of our own preferences. So that's what we've done. We've developed a system of recruitment and promotion which helps people. Helps us all really to look at the evidence, really decide who we want, and really understand that thing about the combinations of difference that you need. And once you've set those criteria, then really you have to hear the evidence. And it's amazing, actually. It, it it What's so exciting is I always say to people, it's not us that's clever; it's Iris that's clever. <laughs> We've just made it kind of usable, wow. um, and the results are exciting. So it's great.
0: That sounds that's it's interesting. I. I... I remember having a, a diversity talk years ago and the and the lady, it was a black lady giving the talk and she said that you you just can't choose your first reaction. You it's it's instinctive, it's it's built into you, but you can choose the second. And that's always stuck with me as well. And I think that, you know, that what you said about the the sort of um recruitment in the orchestra, you know, we, we don't know often that these things, these programs are running inside us that result in these decisions that are skewed and wrong.
1: Well, I mean, the classic justification, oh, you know, we just chose the best person for the job. Well, okay, but unless you actually interrogate what best means, Mm. you know, if you leave that uninterrogated, then actually what best means is the people who've risen to the top already, actually isn't it in whatever level they've risen to yeah. and if whatever it is its has got a gender bias or a ethnic bias or whatever it is then you're going to reproduce the the people you've got you're not going to look for the new for the different and you're not going to i mean i'll give you a very classic example actually when women go off and from work and have babies when they come back organizations almost always if not overtly effectively ask them what have you forgotten Whereas actually what they should ask women is what have you learned Yes. You know, about pain and stress and sleeplessness and managing time and all that gear, you know? Yeah. I've never heard a senior woman talk about her job without talking about her family.
0: Gosh. No, you're right, actually. Yeah, as, a, as a mother and having gone through all that, you, you're right. Yeah. Although my company was quite progressive and allowed us to have a job share when, when I went back. So that was Fantastic. quite... That was quite good.
1: Well, but it's the valuing of what you've learned. And that's really key. So, so I was saying in diversity and stuff, you know, I mean, people say, you know, well, it's all just a numbers game. You know, does that mean, you know, she gets the job and I don't because I'm a white bloke and she's a woman or whatever? And I go, no, it's not a numbers game. This is about what people can bring through who they are. So, you know, I'm always saying to gay people, other gay people, um, but being gay is not enough. You just turn up and say, I'm gay. Well, frankly, who cares? It's very dull. It just is. to so shop about it. What I'm quite interested in is what you've learned about yourself growing up gay. That I'm interested in because that's about who you've become and that's about the insights you can bring through who you are. So it, it's not just, oh, let's get black people. It's not a recipe. Let's get black people and gay people and women and stir. It's not that. You've actually got to get people in who've got the insights to combine to meet the challenges that in insurance they've got in England and Ireland.
0: Use yeah. the absolutely. Bring it back round. Brilliant. Okay, cool. Thank you for that. It's really, and I think it might have hopefully opened up some eyes in terms of some of this stuff. And uh, so there isn't just, you know, it's not just a tick box. There is some business benefit to to being diverse and what opportunities that brings. And you know, going back to your speaking, I'm I'm imagining that the the fact that you've done stand up has you know, filtered into the speaking that you do today—is that true? And and how do you make sure that your talks are engaging and entertaining? Is it something that comes naturally, or something you design in when you're talking?
1: Well, it's partly a way of being. I mean, that's how I am. I mean, I you know, I mean, that's what I do. I mean, very sweetly, my lovely husband always says that <laughs> one of the things he most likes about me. There's obviously a very long list on the other side of the ledger, by the way. <laughs> but the one of the things he likes me is i make him laugh and you know being a performer for 10 years and learning the tools of stand up you know, is an incredibly it's an incredibly useful thing because you understand audiences and then you learn as i say, which i have done actually find out through public speaking my relationship what audiences see in me the minute they see me you know and you learn that and you learn to use that so i always say to people about public speaking you know, the cardinal rule is don't be dull. So you're never going to be a good public speaker if you're dull. So if you're dull, do something else. You know, don't get up there and bore us to tears because it's just no one's happy. We all think you're dull. And, and Quinty Crisp used to say, don't just be dull. Be the dullest person you know. So that when... <laughs> ask you to dinner, they say, come to dinner, can you bring that incredibly dull friend with you? But actually don't go into public speaking if you're dull, it's not your thing, you know, get crochet or a countess. So, so that's the first thing, you can't afford to be dull, but that doesn't mean that you have to be jazz hands.
0: But it yeah. does
1: mean that you have to want, in whatever way it is that you do it, you have to want to tell that story and, 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 and you have to have an argument. And you have to want to convince those people of that argument. And you can only do that by watching them and listening to them and really trying to think about where they are and then how you communicate. So communication's a two-way thing and all that, you know? Yes. So I've seen speakers who are quiet, but the story they've got is so powerful and they just know how to tell it. So you don't have to run around the stage like me, you know, looking at some, you know, fat fag. <laughs> you, you can do it in your way, but just don't be done. And don't use tons and tons of PowerPoint. And don't read the PowerPoint. And, you know, there are lots of things like that. I think it's, I think stories is probably it. And I also do, I mean, I kind of have a style where I tease the audience quite a lot. So I did, this, I did the Building Societies Association Conference the other day. And I'm doing a wonderful set of seminars with chairs and chief execs and human resource directors on this stuff as a result of that. And it's a really good program. I'm enjoying it a lot. But you know they are quite traditional, and I went out to that audience in Manchester, and there were about three hundred and fifty people in the room, and I suspect there were about fifty women, or maybe seventy women, and the rest of them were by and large middle-aged men in grey suits. And I went out there, and they sort of know this, you see. So, and the first thing I said to them was, I went out and I said, "Um, "Well, you're very diverse, aren't you?" I said, "No, not." And I said, "You know." I think just for the purposes of this conversation we're going to have, I think I'm just going to call you collectively, Brian. <laughs> and of course it got a huge laugh because they know, but what I was saying to them was, I was teasing them into recognizing that there's a problem. So that's my way of doing it. You'll find whoever you are, your way of doing it. But, but do you see what I was trying yeah. to do there? Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't think of it before I went on. I did actually respond to them. It was a joke I made because I looked at them. And I thought, no, I've got enough experience now, I hope, not to make the wrong joke. I used to do that a lot. Make the wrong joke to start with. And that's fatal because that you've lost them there. So I think what you have to do is just try and you have to get in there, to tell a story, you know, and you have to find a way that's interesting to them. I'm doing a bunch of a thing for a bunch of bankers next week. And it's really hard because it's 10 years since the crash. And actually, the truth of it is, banking hasn't changed enough. I was
0: going to say, nothing's changed, really. They're still getting away with stuff. The
1: difficult thing is, they think they're doing their best to make it better. So if I just go in there and tell them they're a bunch of scum and they're not doing anything and why did they ruin the economy and blah, 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 blah they're not you know they're just going to turn off
0: yes absolutely
1: so I'm trying to think really hard about how I say to them look I'm sure you're making some progress but actually seriously we need to make more how are we going to do this and how interested are you in doing it so somehow you've got to be critical of them without giving them a hard time just finger pointing and it's hard I don't know what I'm going to do yet I haven't worked it out
0: oh good luck with that one I shall, I, shall, I shall find out in when i see you in september or no october i should say brilliant well simon thank you i mean you've shared some absolute golden nuggets around speaking it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you about the stuff that you've done in your life and the difference that you've made now before i let you go and before i ask you how people can get in contact with you and work with diversity by design i have a few standard questions if that's okay
1: absolutely
0: um First of all, what is the best thing that speaking 's done for you
1: I think I just get to get to meet you know, incredibly wide range of people i 've just got asked to speak at uh, something which is a petroleum and oil conference you know i 've mentioned the building societies I, somebody asked me to go to Madrid earlier on this year to talk to a bunch of Spanish human resource directors i mean you know, it, it's just lovely to go places and speak to people and listen to them because it's just very rich. So that's my favourite thing about it.
0: Brilliant. And, and what's been your worst gig? Have you got <laughs> one?
1: Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's several comedy gigs. There's always a great story, of course, about the two comics sitting in the bar and one says to the other, Simon Fanchel's on tour again. Did you hear that? He said, yeah, I did hear that. He said, fantastic, brilliant, brilliant, killed in Oxford. He said, oh, no, I didn't hear that. Said went to Bristol, killed in Bristol. So now I didn't hear about that either, mind you. He went to Milton Keynes and he died of death. And the other comic goes, "Oh yeah, I heard about that."
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. who wants
1: to talk about the good gigs? The, the dreadful gigs are the ones you really are just funny, and they m- involve the most massive amount of ego loss. I remember Tony Allen, the comic I very first performed with, used to say, "You know, you can't get that level of ego loss in an ashram in India." You know. <laughs> It is devastating level of rejection. Imagine going on a date and the person leaving after two sentences. It's just like that, you know. And the worst thing anybody ever said to me from the stage, it's very, from the audience, very early on in my career, was they leant over and said, really loud enough for me to hear, but not really loud enough for many other people to hear. Get off, you're not funny. Oh, and yeah. that was... Devastating. And then I once did a gig with Jenny LaCote, the wonderful Jenny LaCote, my sort of comedy wife. And I, do you know I can't even remember where it was. It was a student audience. She went on and that was marvelous. And everybody loved her. And I went on after the interval and I might as well have been speaking Greek. It wasn't that they were hostile. They just sat and looked at me like I was behind a plate glass window speaking a foreign language. And the only person that was laughing was Jenny.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
1: laughing at my humiliation
0: solidarity I do <laughs> brilliant and what's the best book you've ever read and uh what's had most impact on your life and why
1: when I was at school years ago I read a book in a series by Emile Zola it's called the Rougent the Macar and there's a book called Germinal and it's about a miners' strike in Belgium in the late 19th century. And it is the most extraordinary combination of the idea of land as a metaphor and these people under the earth as the underclass. Mm. And the relationship they have with the mine owners. And there are scenes from it that I absolutely still remember um, and I read it first when I was about 15 and I've read it several times since. It's the most extraordinary book.
0: And it's called Germinal by? Germinal,
1: J G E R M I N A L, And it's by Emile Zola.
0: Right, cool. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, last couple of questions. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever had and why?
1: Somebody once told me you can't sell something to somebody who doesn't want it. <laughs> It's
0: very, it's very true.
1: <laughs> and the, So the point behind it, though, is a brilliant man. John Muskelley has a company called JMA Associates. He's not involved any longer. He sold it a long time ago, but it's a brilliant recruitment company. He's an extraordinary salesman. And he, he said to me once, you know, the thing about selling is it's all about listening. And somebody else said, in a similar theme, so just to extend that, is when you're in a meeting with somebody to whom you want to sell something, you'll ask, always start by asking questions. Never, ever start by telling them things. Always ask them the questions first. And when you think you're going to tell them something, ask another question. Yes. Because until you know where they are and what they want to buy and what their where their where they're, where their jeopardy is and what the problem they're trying to solve, you can't sell what you've got. Um so that's the best piece of advice, I think. And and what that then also means, by the way, is you've got to sell things to people that they understand. Yes. And it takes quite a while to work out what your product is.
0: Dead in the water yes absolutely brilliant thank you and then final question before I let you go is if you could have any mentor and they can be alive or dead fictional or non-fictional who would you have and why
1: any mentor gosh that's somebody's going to give me good advice yes mm. the trouble with these questions is that if you ask me tomorrow I'll, I'll give you a different answer so that's I'll give you fi- yeah that's whatever fine. today's answer is who would I the people i find really fascinating actually are the people who make something out of nothing so in a sense i suppose what i what i just to take me somewhere where i have never been um they're the people who who there was a guy the other day i saw a little thing on youtube and he made a refrigeration unit out of a a, a fan and a heater and what it enabled to happen was it enabled the fruit and vegetable sellers in the place where he lives to of course keep their produce for longer. Oh. And then sell it the next day. But what I thought was brilliant was it was the match between the need and this extraordinary use of just basic technology. And I just thought actually that would be really good to be able to talk to somebody like that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean either that or Michelangelo. <laughs> well they could who I just think must must have been. I mean how can you take a block of marble and without yeah. you know you take marble away and you create that thing that's astonishing how do you do that how do you magic david out of a block of marble and i just think he must have been fantastically exciting and actually probably fantastically horny in bed <laughs>
0: Brilliant. i like that one Brilliant. simon thank you so much now if people want to Book you to speak or to work with Diversity by Design, what's the best place for them to get in contact with you?
1: Well, the two ways to do it is there's a website, obviously, which is diversity by design, all one word, dot co dot uk, diversity by design dot co uk, and similarly, the, there is a contact thing on there which comes straight to me, but otherwise, you can just email me at Simon at diversity by design co dot uk.
0: Brilliant. And are you ever, if people want to connect with you on social media, what's the best place to get hold of you there?
1: Well, I'm on Twitter, you know, because occasionally, you know, one night's a good shout. Um, and that's at that's, that's Simon Fanshawe.
0: Twitter, It. I will put a link in the show notes to all of those places for people. And I
1: would just say that, you know, I would point out that I am married. And, you know, I know there'll be floods of, <laughs> of, of men dating, wanting to date me. Well, um, not
0: just men, Simon. You might get women as well. And they can't. It makes you all the more desirable, the fact that they yes, can't so have you.
1: The two girlfriends I've ever had uh, both turned out to be lesbians. So I think that tells you something <laughs> about the, the undemanding nature of the sexual relationship.
0: Uh, oh You're <laughs> probably saying, their beard.
1: <laughs> you know, was, well, no, I don't think I was even that. I don't think I even got to that status But I just want to point out that I am married very happily. And, you know, I'm not available for anything other than, you know, polite conversation.
0: Everyone should have got that message. You are taken off the market. (laughs) Excellent. Simon, thank you so much again for your time and for the wonderful things that you've shared. Really appreciate it.
1: Real pleasure. Real pleasure.
0: What a character. Well, and what a journey. And it's so interesting to see what happens when you settle into your skin and find your purpose. When you hit that sweet spot, magic happens. How about you? Have you found yourself? It's so easy to fall into the trap of trying to be like someone else or what you think people will want. But if that's not who you are, then it won't work. As I tell my comedy students, you are unique and so is your view of the world. And if we talk about the same thing, it's gonna be through lenses of all of our different experiences, influence, beliefs, and values. It will never be the same. And people sometimes use the word snowflake in a derogatory way but we are all snowflakes the same but different and it's the differences that make life interesting and each of us special so go and check out Simon's company Diversity by Design and say hi to him on Twitter but remember he is off the market and if you are on Twitter come and say hi to me too at Sarah Archer 15 thank you so much for listening please As ever, I'm asking you to leave a review or rating wherever you are so that other people can find the show and also subscribe so you don't miss a show. And all that's left for me to say is thank you again. Have a wonderful week. And don't you forget to go and grab your life. No one else's. Buy the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to the Speaking Club podcast at www.saraharchard.co.uk.